Welcome to Latinx Like Me, a show where we embrace how beautifully diverse our community is while also celebrating the things that unite us. I'm your host, Emma Cárdenas, a first-generation Mexican-American born and raised in LA. I'm so excited to share today's conversation with my guest, Roberta Barreto, who happens to be a fellow first-generation kid and a fellow native Angelino. We covered a lot of ground, from Shusha to the fashion industry, and what it's like to grow up as a Brazilian-American in LA. And yes, there's a lot of food talk. So grab a snack and enjoy the show. Um, awesome. All right, let's let's take it way back and start from the beginning. I guess, well, you and I met many years ago. God, I can't even remember. Not to age myself, I want to say that it was close to 18 years ago. <gasps> and I know that because I just realized that I am a year away from my 20-year high school anniversary. <laughs> wow. And then I started um, teaching at the studio where we met two years into school. Yeah. Wow. Oh, my gosh. That, I hadn't done that in a while. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, so we met at the San Pedro Ballet Studio where you were a teacher and I was the receptionist. Um, that's the very famous studio that Misty Copeland came from, which is always like very exciting. Very exciting. Um, but yeah, and so when this podcast came up, I was like, I have to talk to Birdie. Like, even though we have not seen each other in person in many, many years, <laughs> kept in touch on Instagram. <laughs> um, because I think your your story is one that, you know, is unique to me, just literally based on where we both grew up, which is LA. And as you said earlier, it has a massive, you know, Mexican American um, demographic, but, you know, again, fellow native Angelino, you're actually mm-hmm. the first person in your family to be born in the States, right? Like only you and your brother are first generation. Uh, correct. I think by now I have another cousin who has had, actually, I know she's like a a distant relative, but yeah, I mean, there's very few uh, people in my family and especially in my immediate family. um, We're a pretty large one that are, are non-Brazilian really. Oh, wow. Oh yeah. You had mentioned earlier that early on, you'd noticed that there was some privilege with, with having that passport. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I think kind of both ways, right? Um, Certainly having an American passport is highly coveted um, to kind of any one person from any sort of background that you can think of who lives in Brazil. You know, I think from a very young age, the word, the, the whole concept of living in a first world country was something that was a very common topic of of conversation at the dinner table, you know, at family gatherings. Oh, this is the American cousin. This is my American niece. This is our American family member. And it's sort of interesting because to me, I always thought, well, but I have a Brazilian passport too. So doesn't that make me Brazilian? Why am I American here? I should be Brazilian here because of my right of passage, because that's what my passport says. So um, sort of from a really young, innocent, you know, age and, and perspective, um, I learned about kind of the privilege of that. Um, but then I think on the flip side, because that was the the lens that I saw it through when visiting family abroad, you know, when explaining that I had dual citizenship to a friend or 
you know, um, to, to a teacher, to anyone here in the States. I felt an enormous amount of privilege and pride, really, to have that, uh, you know, a second passport to, to talk about um, as, you know, part of my story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so funny right now that you were talking about, like, the way you're introduced um, when you're back in Brazil. It's mm-hmm. very similar to my cousins, like, this is my, la, gring- la gringa or, or whatever. Yeah. Oh, like, yeah. you, you never lose that. <laughs> like the I will forever be a gringa. Forever. <laughs> when, I, when I was recently in Brazil, not so recent, a couple of years ago, um, and I speak Portuguese fluently um, and understand it, obviously. And uh, my, I was with my, my husband. He was my boyfriend at the time. We were walking down the street in Ipanema. And we, I, I think we were looking for a restaurant or someone, something. I stopped someone on the street to ask for directions, just like a simple question of, hey, is this to the right or the left? Mm-hmm. And the person that I stopped literally jolted back, had the most surprised look ever on his face. And he said, you, Brasileira? No way. <laughs> because I'm blonde hair, blue eyed, and don't look anything like, you know, the majority of what the people in Rio look like, which I think also says a lot because... Brazil is one of the most diverse countries I think I've ever, well, been to. I haven't been to that many countries. I mean, I love to travel, but it is kind of interesting to think like there's not one, to me, there's not one sort of way that that I think a person from Brazil looks, you know, or should look or, or you know, if, you, if someone asked me to draw what a typical Brazilian person looks like, I'd say pick a point on the map and then I can maybe try and go from there but it is a melting pot. Yeah, it's actually funny that you should say that. So I was looking some stuff up earlier and, and I think in in America, when someone thinks of a Brazilian, I feel like the only point of cultural reference that like the average American has is like a supermodel. It, it's like yeah. Giselle, <laughs> <Indiana> <laughs> uh, <laughs> or an Amazon but, woman. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. then, yeah, you're right. In terms of the country, like it's a massive country and there's also um, a very large white population to the south where like they really do preserve that heritage. Like they're even speak, you know, German, Polish and Italian, but then mm-hmm. like, to the north is really where you get more of the African um, yeah. stamp. And I guess in terms of that, like kind of where does your family fall in? Like, where is your family from? We're all over the place, really. So if you want to like kind of take it way back, I descend from Spain and Portugal. <laughs> um, I think my my grand, my great grandparents' generation um, would have kind of the most influence, just in terms of how I look, um, because I have first cousins that actually don't look anything like me, that look very much like they are from that northeastern region. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have other cousins who are, you know, based out of Sao Paulo. Um, my family is predominantly in Rio, but like I have a, a whole network of, you know, a family, distant, like second and third cousins. But by the way, a Brazilian family, you've got a first generation cousin or a fourth generation cousin, it's all the same. <laughs> so, you know, I think I have a, it's third generation cousins in, um, in Sao Paulo who are all um, Italian. So very kind of light, again, very um, kind of European, you know, um, coloring. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think I fall somewhere in, in that mix. Um, which is interesting because my mother's family, um, where she has a lot of family from the south of Brazil, where you do 
see quite a bit of um, German and um, Dutch even mm -hmm. uh, influence, you know, um, which might explain why I kind of look the way that I do. Um, you know, she's got a lot of family coming from that part, but then she's got a lot of family from the Northeast, which is why I have first cousins that look very much not like they would be related to me. <laughs> um, so I guess, yeah, I think when I try and explain to someone who really can't understand or even accept probably that I am a first generation American uh, descendant of Brazil, I kind of say, well, have you have you looked at pictures of people in the South? That's more or less where I come from. I kind of keep it easy. Yeah. Or sometimes I'll say, well, I have Portuguese and Spanish roots. And but again, I've been to Spain and it's another place where it really depends where you are. Not everyone mm -hmm. kind of fits that sort of mold that you'd expect them yeah. to fit. There's definitely more diversity than people than people realize in, in so many countries. Um, but you know, you and I did have very similar experiences growing up, like going back to, to our parents' homelands for the summer, um, mm -hmm. which I guess, and in terms of, I'm thinking of your husband here, is not <laughs> like a usual thing. What was his reaction when you were like, yeah, I grew up going, going to Brazil? Yeah, I think that he at first heard it and was like, that's super cool. So that was, you know, that was like a like a vacation that you got to take every once in a while. And I said, no, that wasn't, it wasn't even, yes, is it vacation? Cause I'm on summer break, sure. But it's just, for me, it was really school's out. You've got two months off. You're going to spend, you know, a third of the time off with one set of grandparents, then another with the other set. And then you can spend the rest of the summer with your cousins. Mm -hmm. um, and he's like, and your aunts and uncles would just take you in for like, three, four weeks at a time, like really kind of taken aback by that. And I mean, yeah, that's what we do. We're family, yeah, you know, totally. and it was always easier for us to go back to see them, even though I grew up in Los Angeles, which is, we used to fly direct. And I think it was around like a 16 hour flight Ooh. to get to Rio. Um, you know, in some cases connecting in the U S in other cases, just flying straight to Sao Paulo and then connecting, um, you know, for the, the last short haul, but, um, that was just what I did. I never went to summer camp. I had no, that to me is like a foreign land. Brazil, by the way, is not, you know? <laughs> um, so I think that he thought that there was something really interesting about that. Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of, um, especially first generation kids that are, are lucky enough to be able to travel. I think that is our, that's the, a typical summer. You just go and, and hang out and whether your parents go with you or they just kind of send you, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I also never went to, to summer camp or any of that. And I was like, oh, okay. Like camping was not introduced to mm -hmm. me much later in life. <laughs> yeah, um, for sure. What were your summers like in Brazil? Like what kind of stuff did you guys do? You know, it's interesting. I've never known Brazil as a tourist. Mm. Um, oftentimes I would get off the plane and it was go, 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 because I was just there for the summer, but everyone else was still very much doing their thing. So in some cases, you know, if my cousins were still in school, then I'd spend the first part with my grandparents. And I had a grandmother who 
it was the one of the most social women I think I've ever known in my life. <laughs> so it would be like the minute you get off the plane and I'm waiting for my suitcases to come. And this was at a time where they could come and meet us in like, you know, the area where you, where you'd pick up your luggage. Mm -hmm. uh, my grandma would be like, all right, let's go. Let's get your suitcases. I've got a lunch and then we're going to church and then we're going to the mall. And then we're going to see your uncle who is, you know, has an hour off. And it was like an agenda. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think when we weren't kind of on her social schedule, it was a lot of what I do here, you know, or what we, what we do here on, on downtime. You go to the movies, you go to the beach. Um, just so happens to be one of the best, most beautiful beaches in the world. And not once did I take that for granted. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you go to the mall. I spent Rio is all over the mall scene. Um, mm -hmm. So I spent a lot of time at the mall. Um, and then very much, uh, I think, what a lot of Latin and really a lot of non-Latin cultures and, uh, you know, experience around the world. It's, it's a lot of time centered around the table with your family, with food. And in our case, it was just a lot of barbecue. Yum. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's talk about your, your home life growing up here in LA. So you mentioned it was a very Brazilian household, um, but like what kind of, I guess, customs or, or traditions were incorporated into that? Um, you know, I think that Portuguese in the house, about 95% of the time was very much the norm. Um, I grew up, my mom, my parents both worked in the States um, with Brazilian related jobs. So my mother worked for the Brazilian consulate based in LA and my father it was an independent, um, you know, businessman, but he worked with um, many companies based in Brazil and in South America. He worked in international, you know, uh, uh, business, but it's interesting because my mom had to speak such a mixture of both English and Portuguese in her day to day that became very regular. So oftentimes we'd, we'd speak a mix of both languages together, but my dad was always very big on, we speak Portuguese in the house because if we don't, you're going to lose it. You won't, you won't retain it. So even if he'd understand you know, what I was asking him in English, he'd say to me in Portuguese, what, what was that so, repeated in Portuguese, please? I'm not understanding. <laughs> and it was his way of kind of keeping the tradition of Portuguese alive in the house. Another big one was my dad had a real thing for like authentic Brazilian rice and beans in the house. So we, you know, were fortunate to have help. Both my parents worked full time and, um, and something that is very customary growing up in, in a place like Brazil and in Rio is, you know, there is someone there to help you. So we were very fortunate to have a live-in um, who came from Brazil, who lived with us, um, mm. that had been with our family. Um, so a familiar person to help, uh, you know, taking my, with taking my brother and I to the bus stop to go to school, helping with making meals because my mom would commute over an hour from work to come home. Um, so she would help with, you know, with all the meals. And it was very big that we, you know, for my father that we had like a really authentic Brazilian dinner on the table most nights. And so that was something that I remember appreciating from a really young age. I remember thinking to myself, I don't think that the rest of my friends have dinner like how we have dinner. <laughs> there was always just so much food. <laughs> um, and we finished it all because that was a very important, you know, tradition in the house too. It's like, you've got a plate of food, you finish it because you're very lucky to have 
all of this food in front of you. Yeah. Um, and it was always like, you eat what is served. You do oh, not, oh, yeah. I don't want this. Can I have this instead? Or like, I don't like this. <laughs> no, there's absolutely no negotiating. Um, <laughs> so I think I learned from a really young age that it's probably in my best interest to appreciate broccoli. And so <laughs> that's how I decided that I liked broccoli. <laughs> Have you kept any of those um, or incorporated any of those customs into your household now? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I moved to New York. I'm going on 13 years here now, which is crazy. Um, And I think when I first moved to New York, I fully dove into the culture here. It was like, you know, you pay what you pay for like a tiny little apartment, but it's all good because you're not in your apartment ever. You're in, you're on the streets, you're at restaurants, you're taking all of the delicious food in. So I didn't really cook a whole lot when I first moved. Um, But then, you know, as the years went by, um, and after getting married, especially, uh, you know, I definitely became a little more comfortable with, with cooking and making more meals at home. And every so often, it's really nice, I will FaceTime my mom and I say, hey, I'm not going to be as good as you are at this. I don't have your hands. But can you walk me through making a mukeka, which is a delicious um, stew with uh, different types of seafood. I personally love it with shrimp. It's made with um, peppers and um, like Brazilian spices and uh, coconut milk. And you do it over a bed of rice. And it's my favorite thing to eat when I go back home to visit my mom. And so I think it was one of my last trips to LA. I thought I said to her, I was like, how is it that I don't know how to make this yet? So, you know, there are these moments where I, part of the ritual of making a dish like that really incorporates my mom. She's on FaceTime. She's telling me exactly what to do because my mom is not the kind of person to like Google a recipe and email it to me. She's like, oh, it's really simple. And then she goes on for an hour, (laughs) you know, reciting like basically in like the most beautiful melodic tone, like the recipe for a dish to me. Like it's so natural to her and I'm just sitting there asking her questions over and over and over again. But lucky for me, I have a really patient mom and that's kind of how I've learned to really adopt some of the cooking in my house and, um, you know, and also enjoying uh, the, the process of cooking. Yeah. Wow, that sounds so familiar. Literally during COVID, um, one of my favorite things to eat are chilaquiles, but the green mm-hmm. ones. Delicious. And- and finally, my mom taught me how to make them. It was via FaceTime. And she, I don't know about your mom, but she doesn't use um, like measurements. Like there's no, not like a teaspoon of this. It's like that much. Yep. So literally it's me holding up like a, a handful of cilantro and she's like, no less. less. Okay, no more. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how they can just kind of eyeball it. I don't really... I'm like, mom, I need to follow an exact recipe. She's like, but I don't have one to give you. What do you mean? <laughs> and then, oh my God, it's so funny. She's like, you know, just, she says, uh, tanteale, which is like, fig- like figure it out, like, or kind of guess when, when it looks right. And I'm like, I, I've never made it. So I don't know when it looks right. Like you need to tell me. <laughs> exactly. I have no idea what it looks like. I just know what it tastes like. Exactly. <laughs> um, something that, came up and I didn't, I know it was a part of my childhood and I didn't realize that she was Brazilian, but did you grow up watching Shusha? Of course. (laughs) Shusha was the Brazilian Madonna set on a reality, like variety show with backup dancers, contestants if she wanted to play a game. I had, (laughs) I had her Barbie 
oh, she was everything. She was my Madonna. She was the more like household, like family friendly version of Madonna. She's an icon. Oh my, I just can't believe I forgot about Shusha. <laughs> it's, I mean, frankly, I'm surprised that Shusha is a bigger deal. I think we need to like figure out a way to make that happen. We need to bring her back. <laughs> <laughs> and um, there were two actually. So there was Shusha, let's just call her the Brittany. <laughs> and then there was Angelica, who was the Christina. <laughs> Only because Brittany came out first and Christina came out second, but like a really close second. So there yeah. were these two incredible personalities and girls who looked like me, actually, mm -hmm. which is kind of interesting because yeah. my complexion seems very much like the what you'd expect of like an all-American girl. Um, and for those reasons, kind of going back to what we were just discussing at the beginning, you know, of, of this call is the, um, did you ever feel excluded or ever feel like maybe you didn't belong or maybe not, not belong, but just felt different. Mm -hmm. And, um, in some cases, yeah, it was like sort of the acceptance of me being the American cousin or niece because I, because of where I was born and how I was raised. But that was always something that I remember loving about watching the two, the two personalities is that they were these like really captivating, super talented, strong, you know, women um, on the screen and and Brazilian and blonde haired and blue eyed. And I remember being like, see, there are girls in Brazil who look like me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love Shusha. Oh my gosh. I know. Oh I'm, my God. I'm, like, I'm going to go down a YouTube like hole and just look up videos of Shusha. I was just gonna say I'm scared to look them up because I don't remember I just remember like loving it and it was something that like my cousins and I watched all the time. Yeah. But yeah oh man that was a thing. I remember my sister went to the Shusha show because yeah. she had a friend who invited her who was like a child actress or something at the time so she had a connection they got like backstage and everything and I cried for days because I because she didn't take me with her and she was like I don't have a ticket for you I'm sorry you're just gonna have to like live with this wow <laughs> that that is rude <laughs> very very nice thanks sis <laughs> Um, so growing up in LA, like we talked about, there's like a massive Mexican culture, but is there, um, I don't want to say a pocket, but is there a Brazilian community that you guys connected with or that you had around you? Yeah, I mean, I think always really my family's um, connection with the Brazilian community started with a lot of the people that they knew through my mom's work, mm -hmm. through my dad's work eventually, and then family. Um, you know, probably nowhere near as large a community than, than you'd find potentially in a Miami, which is kind of the obvious, mm. um, or a Boston even. When I moved to the East Coast, I learned that there's a huge Brazilian community in the Northeast. So Boston, oh, wow. New Jersey, um, I think there's an, an area in Connecticut as well. Um, and it's interesting because it's like the older I get, the more I learn about this. And like we were just uh, driving, my husband and I took a little road trip over the summer and we went up to Massachusetts. Um, we passed through another small town on the way there. And I was like, why are there 5 million Brazilian markets here? <laughs> and I Googled it and it turns out it's like a place with, with quite a large, both Brazilian and Portuguese community, which is really interesting. Oh, that's, yeah, it's so fascinating. Yeah how these communities will just pop up. Um, yeah. And I'd love to hear the story because not one is the same. Um, you know, I'm not going to 
pretend to be a, an expert on the history of how, you know, the community that ended up in LA ended up there. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think growing up, you know, we always had, there was always Portuguese around. There were always, we've always had Brazilian, um, you know, close family friends. Um, and in most cases, like I said, it's probably through my family, through my parents, just having familiar contacts through, through work and our family abroad. But, um, you know, it's sort of that same concept of like, like I have a lot of friends who are Jewish growing up in LA mm -hmm. and now living in New York, large Jewish population here. And they joke and they call it Jewish geography when so-and-so knows so-and-so because of the connection between this person and that person. And they went to the same school or the, you know, the same temple or something. So it was very much a similar conversation in the house. It's like, oh, you know her? She's Brazilian. She moved to LA. You guys should connect. You're both Brazilian in LA. Yeah. Um, or like my mom's best friend. She just happened to be at the park one day with us when we were kids. And um, her, this woman at the time was there with her kids who were about the same age. And my mom heard her speaking Portuguese to her kids. And it was like, boom, flocked to her. Oh, you're Brazilian? I'm Brazilian. <laughs> yeah, that, that is a really nice, um, I feel like that type of connection happens a lot, which, yeah. where it's nice when you're, I mean, I hate the term, but when you're a minority, you do like yeah. to, to find others and, and really build that community. So I think that's, that's awesome. Absolutely. Um, you know, I always kind of felt like I didn't have enough, like just friends that I met, you know, mm -hmm. who were, who were also like me, uh, First, either first generation born um, in the US from a Brazilian family um, or having moved here from Brazil and living in LA. Mm -hmm. So I think um, when, when remembering that, you know, growing up and going to high school and making a lot of friends from different cultures and backgrounds, realizing and recognizing that not one of them was Brazilian because there really weren't very many Mm -hmm. Brazilian kids around my age and, and in the community that, you know, where I, where I lived and went to school. So that was always interesting. I think it always made it more exciting though, when I did hear Portuguese or I did see someone who I like, or hear of someone who I knew was like moving in from, um, from Brazil, because again, because of my mom's connection with the consulate. <laughs> <laughs> um, since actually you just mentioned school, that's a really good segue. I, I want to talk about um, I think a pretty important experience that you commented on, and, and that was your your ESL experience at mm -hmm. at school. Can you talk a bit about that? Because I think it's so important to hear that, but also, you know, we can chat about any of the long term implications something like that could have had on you or, or someone else. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's a really interesting part of my story when I think about my story at all. Is really my experience as a young kid. Um, growing up, uh, you know, in the public school system in Los Angeles, um, and having a very almost like like nightmare <laughs> of an experience that we kept kind of reliving itself every year after year mm -hmm. um, during my elementary school years, and that was that on the first day of school, we would show up. And we would, you know, go to the principal's office, they would assign me to the class, or we'd get the information ahead of time, we'd go to the class that I was assigned, not knowing anything but the classroom number. And sure enough, it was like clockwork, you'd walk in and not one kid in the room spoke English, and I was in an ESL class. <laughs> and my mom and you know, we, we, there's not much you can do when you're showing up on time. And it's like, boom, class is starting. So sit down and sit through it. Mm -hmm. But it was, like I said, sort of a nightmare. It's, I'd come home in tears as a young kid every, every year on the first day of school saying, Mom, I don't know why they keep doing this, but I can't, 
I didn't speak Spanish at the time. I grew up learning how to speak Spanish kind of in that mm -hmm. Californian way, but yeah. you know, I didn't speak Spanish at the time. I was really young. And I just remember saying to her, I'm not going to make any friends because I can't communicate with the people in my class. Mm -hmm. And my mom would, you know, be furious. She'd say, why is it that they keep putting you in an ESL class? You're, you know, there's, I don't think that there was any sort of testing at the time. I was way too young. Um, but you know, this happened from the time that I was in first grade through I think about fourth grade. And then I moved to a magnet school for a couple of years. And then when I transferred back into the public school system, when we moved to back over to the west side of LA and I went to school in the Beverly Hills system, they put me in a very similar structured class, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, which close to 80 or 90% even of the students were from a different country, did not speak English. Um, and in that particular case, it was actually like a, um, the, the, the level of education that I was receiving was very clearly not what the other classes that were offered in that school were, you know, were offering. So, um, you know, I kind of always made my own assumption with it, but by day two, we were back in the principal's office and then they moved me to the appropriate class, but it was never not a struggle. Mm. And, you know, I thank my mom for really being determined and supportive to say, this is my daughter. She speaks English. Yes, her name is Roberta Barreto. You don't have to pretend to say it Roberta or Roberta because you feel uncomfortable because you don't know how to pronounce it, how you think it might be pronounced. Don't even start with Barreto. I was burrito for years. <laughs> but my name is Roberta Barreto. I speak English. I understand you know, my, the way that I am able to process and learn things is very much on par with at the very minimum kind of the average of what's going on here in the public school system in LA. That's a whole other thing. Um, and please give my child an honest chance at an education that she is very much deserving of. Um, and I think ultimately what it, what it taught me was how can I not end up in this situation again next year on the first day of school? So I learned to be really dedicated in my classes, to listening to my teachers, you know, integrating with my friends and really, you know, making the most out of my experience. And I think from a really young age, I thought I realized like some things you have to kind of work towards in, in ways that aren't necessarily that common for other people. Like maybe because my name is different, people assume that I don't speak English and you know, I can, I can surely expect to have to kind of put up a little bit of a fight to get into the classes that I feel like I should be in. Um, you know, and I think maybe on some level, that's what I sort of took with me as I got older and, you know, learned how to kind of navigate life and fight for the things that I really believe in and, and for my dreams. Yeah. I mean, it's, when you first told me that I was just baffled, like literally, I feel like the only thing that someone could have used to put you in that situation was your name. Because again, looking at you, you do not come off as like a stereotypical yeah. Brazilian or even like another sort of, you know, Latinx person that people assume if you're, if you're darker, you're, you oh, know, yeah. you can't or fully white passing. Yeah. <laughs> And that I and the fact that it happened year after year, again, is completely baffling. So good on your mom yeah. for you know going in there and setting them straight. Unfortunately, she had to do that many times. Um, but I definitely thought I was like, well, what about like the, you know, the kids whose parents like don't speak Spanish or don't you know speak English? I'm sorry, don't speak English. Yeah. 
and like can't go in there and, and do it like that would affect so many kids because I'm sure mm-hmm. you know this has happened many times yeah and you know what I'm, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because you know I, I think you're absolutely right had I maybe been in a scenario where my mom didn't feel comfortable approaching mm-hmm. the principal's office and saying please reconsider where you've positioned my daughter this year you know I, I owe a lot to my mom, I think, and um, I'm almost now just realizing how <laughs> that must have felt to what, as a parent to watch your kid go through something that they're not really deserving of because of a you know a mix up at the at the in the office with you know paperwork in my name because it's like it took four years and my mom was like, all right, enough already. We're getting you out of the school and going to. Um, you know, a different program. And I think Mm -hmm. this is going to be better for you overall. And, you know, it never happened with my brother too, which is interesting. Can you talk about the difference in the name between you and your brother? Yeah. So, so we moved, so my parents moved to the States. I have an older sister as well, who is Brazilian born. She's six years older than me and came to the States when she was two. Um, And my brother is three years younger than me. And when, so my sister's name is Bianca, obviously I'm Roberta. And when my brother was born, my parents named him legally on paper Felipe. Felipe is how you pronounce it in Portuguese. And um, I think that after they had seen what was happening with me, they decided to legally change it on, on, you know, his um, birth certificate to Philip, P-H-I-L-L-I-P. And yeah, I don't know what it was. He also didn't spend as long in the, at the elementary school that I did. I think he was only there for a year or so. Um, and then we, we moved over to different school. Yeah. But yeah, it's literally to me, it's like, it's the name and how can you discriminate against someone and against a child. I wonder if things like that are happening these days though. I I can't imagine that people would be so quick to assume in ways that maybe they were back then, Mm -hmm. you know? I hope yeah. not anyway. <laughs> oh, I know. My gosh. That could just open up an entire can of worms. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do want to talk about your high school experience. So is, even coming from a magnet school, it happened again. Like there, you said there was like yep. four tiers that you're, uh, you're assigned to one of the four and they assigned you to, again, one that's very like ESL-like and, and not, you know, one would assume coming from a magnet school that you would be put in the first or second, which is more of like mm-hmm. classes and, and whatnot. But in that case, like it was too late to change or like you couldn't change out of that. Yeah, there was no negotiating into a different class at that point because um, there were frankly no, there were no seats, there were no desks available. Mm-hmm. And I think that because we had been, I had been at a magnet school for three years where, by the way, I tested to get into all of my honors classes and didn't have the same issues that I had had in the, in the years prior in elementary school. We just kind of figured, okay, here are your credentials. She's been at mm-hmm. a magnet school. She's been in all honors classes. She has a good, you know, she has good grades. Um, this is a public school. It was the Beverly Hills school district is really interesting in that you have four K through eight elementary schools and then one main high school. Mm. Um, and my graduating class was small. I think within each class, it was, um, an elementary school. I couldn't even tell you it was very small. Um, and then in high school was around maybe 500 students at the most. Mm. And so for them to say that they didn't going back to kind of like just not having a seat available in eighth grade of the yeah. four classes, the first was very 
they didn't even try to like mask it. It was like you're in, in one or two, you know that that's like a, an above average sort of honor level curriculum. Mm. And then three is probably standard. And then four is ESL, ESL-like, mm. right? Um, so for them to say that there weren't any seats was just, I think my mom at that point was like, all right, here's what we're going to do. You're going to pass every class, not only with like, you know, great grades, you're going to come through with flying colors because you're capable of that because they can't make an adjustment that shouldn't factor into your experience and everything that you learn. So be curious, be kind, be poised, and you'll get through this. And sure enough, I, you know, I graduated again with really good grades, passed into all honors classes by the time I got into ninth grade um, and, and finished out high school that way. Yeah. Oh my God. What a freaking yeah. roller coaster. I, I think eventually when I have a child of my own, picking that kid's name is going to be a real <laughs> exercise for me. <laughs> um, hopefully, I mean, hopefully society has evolved by then, but man, what, yeah. what a fucked up situation. <laughs> There's really no other way to put it. I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> but then you did go off and, and you went to Cal State Long Beach um, mm -hmm. where you studied, what did you study? Um, so I actually studied, so I started off as a dance major yeah. and um, thought for sure that that was my path and there was no other way that I was going to leave school without a dance degree. And then about two years in, my extremely traditional dad was like, cool, but how are you really going to pay your bills? <laughs> 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 I think it's great that you enjoy this and I think it's great that you're very good at it, but what do you want? to really do with your life if something like this doesn't work out. Um, and at the time I couldn't see it as anything other than like, well, in Brazil, you can only get a law degree or a medical degree, but like, this is the U S and we have so many different options in our like, university system here. And how can you say this to me? I'm an artist. Like <laughs> we're just really having a moment with it. But, you know, um, eventually I ended up uh, developing my major and I worked, I, I worked in a lot of the credits that I had um, gained from my dance training into somewhat of like a minor concentration. Mm -hmm. And then um, because if I was still in the program, I was able to, to take the more advanced classes, which kept me sane and balanced. Mm -hmm. And then um, kind of played with my curiosity. And uh, I basically mapped out an interdisciplinary study degree um, with, uh, within the journalism department. Um, with a PR focus. And then I had taken some fashion classes and, um, you know, kind of catered my, my uh, degree to, to journalism, PR, a little bit of fashion. Yeah. Oh, that's um, awesome. it, yeah, it was fun. And I, you know, ultimately decided that I wanted to, to get a, a writing job and I wanted to write for, you know, a fashion magazine or, um, you know, be a freelance writer. I, mm -hmm. I wasn't really sure what I wanted. I just kind of figured, you've got all these different little, you know, elements in, uh, now kind of to speak to um, with your experience in school. Now that you've left, what do you want to do with it? Yeah. Um, and I think that maybe I took a lot of my experience with really fighting hard for the things that I wanted. And, and, and really what I realized that I wanted was to kind of work in that corporate world and, you know, work my way up and, and be kind of on the front lines of, of fashion. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how I ended up making it to New York because this is the place to be for that. Yep, totally. Um, <laughs> so you, I mean, you've been in the fashion industry for, for many years now and 
you know, kind mm -hmm. of you just give like a brief overview of, of your trajectory um, through there and kind of where yeah. you're yeah, you know, I feel really lucky. I, I kind of fell into my career. I um, when I was living in LA, uh, my last semester of school. So I, I taught dance, obviously, for for the majority of the time that I was in school. And then um, my last semester, I worked at a boutique. I was a merchandise manager, and I worked really closely with my buyer. So by the time I moved to New York, I was really interested, like I had said, um, in looking for a PR job, a fashion mm -hmm. PR job, or a writing job. And when I got here, because I got here, by the way, with an apartment, which I decided was like the really hard thing to get, the job will come, it's fine. <laughs> this was also pre-recession. <laughs> I moved at the end of 2007. So I think if my 2008 self was trying to like get this across to her parents, I may have never ended up here. <laughs> but um, I remember thinking to myself, you know, you've got all this experience um, with different internships and, you know, you've got all this, these contacts in New York, like you'll find something, it's all good. And worst case scenario, if you can't get like a, a full-time corporate job right away, then you can work in stores and, um, you know, kind of see, see who you meet. And New York's all about networking anyway, so it'll be a great experience. And so naive of me, but you know, luckily it worked out. <laughs> I, um, I ended up getting a job. I got hired at Bloomingdale's in their buying office because they saw that I had a lot of buying experience um, when I was managing the boutique. And, um, so that's kind of how I fell into my buying career. And I spent five years there moving around to different families of business. So I started off in women's designer. So I was working with all of the luxury fashion houses mm -hmm. and um, worked my way through a program at the, at the um, company, which was the executive buyer training program, very limited amount of space to get in. So even though I had been working as an assistant in the buying office, you had to still um, have like recommendations and go through a really intense, like pretty rigorous um, interview process. And, um, and I was fortunate enough to, to get uh, accepted into that program. Okay. And then after about a year of the training program and working in, um, in the kids world, I got an opportunity to move over to the wholesale side. So in, instead of buying from the vendors, I would now be the vendor. Mm -hmm. um, and I moved over to J Brand, which was and is and continues to be a California based denim company. Um, so it felt like a really perfect organic fit. I had always been really interested in the sales side of things, um, just because I worked so closely with my vendors as a buyer. Um, so I spent a few years at J Brand um, learning about the wholesale side and business management from that um, perspective is a little bit different uh, than what you learn as buyer, but very complimentary. So it felt really organic and I really liked it. Um, I moved over to a multi-line showroom after that, worked with another um, denim brand, a contemporary collection, Kern Elliott, and then um, with Equipment, which is a silk blouse company. And then uh, took a year off after that and freelanced. I got married that year. Um, so I was kind of poking around at, you know, and having um, my go at different uh, freelance projects. So I did a little bit of buying again, was working with a lot of like startup companies um, and helping them with their business development. And then towards the end of my my first and only year of freelance work, I received a call from a recruiter um, to actually give her a a review on a girl that I had worked with um, at one of the, the companies that I worked with in the past. And at the end of, she and I had been playing a ton of phone tag and we 
had had like four or five calls by the end of a week. And she was like, it was really nice getting to know you this week. Thank you so much for your, <laughs> for your referral. And also, can I ask what you're up to? Like, you seem like you're interesting and what do you do? And <laughs> so I got to speaking with her and then she was like, you know what? I think I might have something for you. I'll call you back next week. And sure enough, she came back to me. It was a really exciting opportunity at Versace in the wholesale world, mm -hmm. um, which I interviewed for and then later got. So I've been at Versace for the last two years. That's amazing. I feel like that's a name everyone knows, which is so amazing. So yay, good for you. Thank you. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, I do want to dive into, I mean, fashion is obviously a, there's always a lot of conversations going on when, um, when it comes to fashion. And I feel like in certain ways they've, as an industry, um, have like started you know, incorporating a lot of inclusivity and, and diversity. I feel like the first thing that how it started off was like more of a size inclusivity and that's like, they're working on that. But now that the big, you know, cultural conversation is more of um, like ethnic inclusivity and, and diversity, have you noticed a shift in, in conversation or in actions um, when it comes to that in, in your experience in that world? Yeah, I mean, I think that the conversations are a little bit, Right now, we're in such a weird time because we're all working remotely. Um, so I, there's not the typical kind of office banter and different types of um, meetings that you kind of that would take had everyone, you know, continued to work in an office, obviously, because of the pandemic, we've all been home since March. Um, but of course, I mean, my company is so we are owned by Michael Kors. Um, which has since become uh, our parent company is uh, called Capri Holdings. Mm. Um, and we're joined by, by obviously Michael Kors and Jimmy Choo. So we're kind of this mini fashion conglomerate. And um, I feel very proud and lucky to know that I work for a company that is very much, you know, anti, of course, racism, all of the different, you know, social injustice topics that were really... Thankfully, forced to face on a daily basis, they have been at the front lines of really, you know, getting people into diversity roles immediately, donating to the types of foundations that you want to be donating to in these times. Um, and we're, they're definitely not afraid to have the conversation. And we're, I think, one of the first companies to put out their position, in, you know, um, in the in the fashion publications about what they're doing to combat these issues. Um, as far as the representation goes, I think we're still seeing that. Um, I definitely see it just in general when I am reading my fashion blogs, you know, I subscribe to like every single newsletter from every, um, uh, you know, direct magazine. Um, and I'm already noticing that there is a lot more inclusivity in terms of, you know, what types of people they're featuring now, what, you know, not one person looks the same. Um, I think that really taking a look and a focus on who the people who are reading these websites are was so important. And I'm really seeing that reflected now and which designers are showing on which types of models, like you're not seeing anyone body type coming down a runway these days, which I think is really, really important. Um, I think that for every brand, there's definitely so much more that we can and, and hopefully will be doing to, to really embrace the diversity that this industry has kind of, you know, shied away from for, for a handful of years. So, um, you know, I'm hopeful. Yes, definitely. I feel like there's, you know, I'm, like you said, I'm very happy these conversations are are happening really across 
the board in, in many different industries because I it's always an evolution, but it's great to have open communication and and it's I feel like it's always great and, and comforting to not only have those beliefs and those conversations with you know yourself and your your circle, but that it's also reflected um, in your career and, and where you mm -hmm. work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, along the kind of similar lines, I want to talk a little bit about um, colorism. And I know that we've um, touched on it a little bit earlier, but how, do you think that your kind of white passing or, or whatever, um, you know, there's so many different ways to, to say, it, and there's a big argument whether you're like your white Latinx or, or white passing, there's like a big discussion going on about that right now yeah. but do you feel like that privilege has served you here in the states um, professionally or, or personally you know it's interesting i i grew up in a progressive city i live in an extremely progressive and very diverse city um and i've had a lot of fortunate opportunities where you know i haven't had to and granted i know we just discussed all of that my experience in school mm. um, but I think that maybe that set me up for sort of the expectation that I might have to, you know, be up against certain people who have different names or different, uh, different, maybe just different places where, where a potential employer's eyes may go when looking at a resume. Um, so I think for me, my experience has in every single thing that I do, you know, has always been my you know, my vehicle for showcasing my potential and, you know, hoping that if I get the interview, then that's it. That's enough. Mm -hmm. Because once I get into the office where I'm giving an interview, then it's up to me to, to showcase what I'm about. Mm -hmm. Do I think that because of the way that I look, maybe I may have had some privileges, you know, compared to other people? it's possible. Look, I don't want to act like I am blind to what's going on in this country. You know, check your privilege is a real thing. And, you know, it's not something that I want to say, like, I'm grateful for. I think it's just a matter of really trying to um, position yourself in, you know, in, in, a, in a way that says, here's who I am, here's what I know, and here's what I can contribute. And that's just me as a person. And and what I, you know, what I know, what I'm, I'm confident I can bring to the table. Um, and I think if anything, you know, one of the biggest things that I have brought up now many times that I've come to think of it in interviews is the fact that I am a dual citizen, that I am, you know, uh, a Brazilian American just trying to make it in the world because I do feel underrepresented when you, when you think about the Latin American community this Latinx community, like I said, kind of at the beginning of, you know, of this call, it, it, Brazilian necessarily isn't necessarily the first Latin group that I, I personally think one thinks of, uh, you know, there's many, there's, there's many larger demographics in the U S I think, um, that are represented in all kinds of ways. Um, so to me, getting an opportunity to discuss, you know, my heritage, my background, um, the things that I've learned being a, being fortunate enough to be able to to be raised in two cultures, really, you know, and, and having two perspectives has been 
one of the greatest privileges, I think, in my life. Um, and so it's always my goal to spin that, not necessarily in, an, in, in any sort of dishonest way, but really just highlight it and celebrate it. If, if I can find a reason to talk about like my links to a Brazilian heritage um, and, and being able to say, yeah, because of that, I know how to speak Spanish. And, you know, I work for an Italian company now and I'm very interested in learning how to speak Italian so that I can, you know, um, socialize with my colleagues abroad. Like, I think that it, it puts me in a position where I say, you know, I don't have just one lens on how I look at the world and how I look at, you know, the different people that I work with, um, because I know there's not one lens and this is my experience. And I'm really interested in kind of understanding how, you know, diversity works at this organization. Um, so that, you know, there's no, there's no question about whether or not I think I'm privileged because of the way that I look. Yeah, and I think, you know, something that you said earlier was, um, like, you can now create, like, because you, you're in the door, you're, you're at the table, you can now create um, opportunities for others. Like, there's that whole, you know, once we're here, like, there's room for more, and, like, let's, let's bring yeah. them in. Yeah, so I love that. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I think for those reasons, like, I'm still very much uh, not surprised in a bad way, but, like, pleasantly surprised when I see a successful Brazilian person, but let's be honest, woman, it, you know, doing well in my, in my industry. Um, I just recently learned that uh, an influencer that I follow who is very high up at a very reputable uh, retailer um, and, you know, is now I believe freelance um, is Brazilian. She actually has lived in the States for, I think the better part of the last two decades. She has two American first, first generation born American children. Her husband's Brazilian um, and they live here in New York and she continues to have a really successful fashion career. And, you know, it's interesting because now on Instagram, you can like answer different questions. And I noticed that a lot of influencers are doing this. They're like, I'm on a long road trip, ask me anything. And yes. she got a lot of questions recently that she posted on her stories about people saying, well, you're Brazilian. Why do you act so American? Why don't you represent it more? And, you know, it's important to, to show that side of you in your life. And she, so she responds speaking in Portuguese and she was like, I feel very proud of my heritage and of my background, but I also feel proud to say that I have an entirely, you know, different experience being an American citizen now and having lived here the past two decades. It definitely is a part of my, my upbringing in my life that I celebrate. Um, you know, it's, it's not so black and white. I think it's definitely, everyone has their own experience with it. And I think that they, you know, are entitled to, to sort of tell their story in a way that makes sense for them, that feels organic, that feels authentic. Um, and for me, like in some cases, it has a lot to do with the fact that I'm Brazilian, but in other cases, a lot to do with the fact that I am a, you know, a first generation born American, mm -hmm. having grown up in a Brazilian home. I, I think that just makes my story really different, which, you know, I'm, I'm proud to, to be able to tell. Yeah, and on that note on, um, it's so funny how they're like, why don't you, you know, say it more to who's the the influencer that you follow? So her name is Marina Larude, oh. and she was the former um, VP, SVP level or VP level um, of fat in the fashion office at Barney's. Oh, nice! And yeah. I had worked with her and had no idea that she was Brazilian. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and and what you brought up right now is that yeah, like everyone's like, what does it mean? Like, why don't you show it more? Like, 
you know, just because you are, whether, you know, for me, it would be Mexican or, or Mexican American. Like it doesn't mean that I, I only eat Mexican food and this is all I'm going to show. And I'm going to be speaking Spanish to you. Like when I feel like when someone says that, like, why don't you show it more? And why aren't you more proud of your culture? It's mm-hmm. to me, it's kind of calling for like, why aren't you more stereotypical or like showing more of this? Like everyone's yeah. experience is so different and, and yeah. yes, everyone lives it, lives it differently. You know, it's interesting. Have you read Becoming? Not yet. Okay. It's incredible. And I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this to you, but if you have a minute, I would definitely recommend it. Um, I listen to it because Michelle Obama narrates and it's incredible on tape as well. Um, There's this one section in the book, I'm not giving anything away. I think this was like all over the press for a while when she was doing her tour. Um, There was one section in the book, it was in one of the earlier chapters when she was young, and I think it was one of her cousins, maybe, or her just her neighbor her friends said, Michelle, why do you talk like a white girl? Mm. And she had an incredible response. She was like, I don't, I, I think at that point, I didn't really necessarily know how to answer them in any way other than what felt genuine. This is, this is how my mother, you know, taught us to speak. We articulate, we, you know, don't, we don't use words like ain't, we say our full sentences and this is just how I learned. And it was so innocent. Um, And something about that really stuck with me because there was no shame in, in the way that she was, you know, explaining how she answered her friends, or I think it was her cousin now, I can't remember, but um, you know, there was no shame in it. She was just raw about it and tell, and this is who she was. And I think from a really young age, you can tell this is a person who trusts that she is being raised, you know, in, in the right ways and is perfectly fine and confident with the way that she speaks. And there's no guilt for having to be a certain way because of the way or act or talk a certain way because of the way that you look, because it falls into any one type of, you know, stereotype. Um, or picture. And um, I think for a long time, for instance, when I introduce myself to anyone, I say my name how I say my name. I'm Roberta Barreto. I'm not going to shift into my Brazilian accent and and introduce myself to someone as Roberta Berredo because why would I, why would I, you know, it's not necessarily um, how I was raised uh, to, to, to introduce myself, it was just, this is your name, this is how you pronounce it in English, you speak English with no accent, that's how you say it, that's how you say it. And um, it's funny because I think that when I'd go, again, I'd go back to Brazil to visit and would be called the American cousin, the American niece, I remember thinking to myself, no, here's where I can switch it, so why am I not considered the Brazilian, you know, niece who lives in the US or the Brazilian cousin who is also American. And, you know, I never really felt shame for any of it or felt like I had to be a certain way. I, again, I think it was just knowing that I had both, both sides and, and, and both representations that allowed me to be who I am and was at the time here in the States versus there. It's really interesting what you just said about how you introduce yourself to people, because that's something I've been thinking about a lot lately, where like I say my name, you know, Emma Cardenas is how I've always said my name. Okay. Now I'm, I find myself wanting to switch when it comes to my name. It's like, Mm -hmm. and not all the times. I think 
there's still that whole like read the room still there's some code switching for me um but yeah like i you know for this i i introduced myself as as emma cardenas just mm-hmm. technically how you say it you yeah know, in, in many like especially professional circles i'll still be like oh cardenas you know whatever mm-hmm. it's fine um but yeah i i do find and i've always wondered and never really you know, looked into or, or asked why some people will will always switch and, and say tacos and I'll just be like, oh, let's go get some tacos, yeah, you know, whatever. And it's, I'm just, you know, it's, it's very interesting. And kind of like you said, everyone's, everyone's experience is, is different. And I, I don't think there should be shame. I think you, if you no. want to say it, you know, in the accent that you want, like go for it. And do it. if you want to switch and sometimes say it, you know, let's go get some tacos or, or let's go get some tacos, you know, whatever. Right. Who cares? Do it. I yeah. agree. You know, I don't, I don't think there's, this is not a box you need to check off. I think yeah. it's a matter of if we can have a bunch of millennials walking around, like abbreviating words on a daily basis <laughs> and no one's flinching or wondering what they're, I mean, I'm definitely confused a lot of the times I'm old now, but like, then I'm sorry. Like if you feel like you really want to pronounce this in a way that it does not necessarily sound how you were pronouncing it for many years before. And that's the choice that you've made. That's the choice that you've made. Is it harming anyone? No. Is it helping your pronunciation in another language? Yes. That's great. Keep the practice going. I'm like, I I, kind of kick myself every so often for being a little more out of practice um, with Portuguese than I'd like to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think that's part of the reason why when I do hear someone speaking Portuguese, I get super excited and I strike up a conversation because I, I really, I'll take any excuse that I can get to, to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, does it feel authentic or normal for me to, to go up to someone I work with and introduce myself in, in, you know, switch to, to mm-hmm. the, the Portuguese, to the proper pronunciation of my name in Portuguese? Right. Not so much. But you know what's interesting is um, having gotten married, I didn't change my name. And I, for a minute, really thought before I even got engaged, I remember thinking when I was a kid, like, well, one day if I get married, then I can just take my husband's name. It'll be so much easier for everyone else to pronounce. Mm -hmm. I remember thinking that like for a while. And I think this probably had a lot to do with the first day of school trauma that I was probably dealing (laughs) with, like a lot of that PTSD or something. But, you know, when we got married, my husband and I were looking at the, the marriage license and they said, well, what are you planning on taking his name? Because if you are, then you need to put, you, you need to, um, you know, add his last name here on the, on the paperwork. And I looked at him and I was like, I can't get rid of my name. There's so much history in my name. It's my name. Roberta, like my husband's last name is Newman. I said, Roberta Newman? There's nothing Brazilian. I said to him, I said, there's nothing Brazilian about that. And he started laughing. He was like, I don't care. Keep your name. So long story short, my marriage license has my, has his name, but I haven't legally changed it. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I think I had this real, like come to truth moment with myself and, and all of these years of like, okay, here it is. Here's your convenient, you know, um, moment to, to change, uh, something that has given you a lot of like, I mean, every single time I'm on the phone with a credit card company or whatever, like, spell your last name, please. Sorry, what was that? What's your last name? (laughs) How do you spell it? Burrito? What? You know, the thought of not doing that ever again actually made me feel incomplete. And I said, there's no way I can do this. I have to keep my name. It's who I am. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's a, 
that's a conversation that comes up um, a lot for people, I feel like. And I used to, I mean, I'm not anywhere near getting married or anything, but I used to always be like, yeah, if my husband has a more like normal, which like, I don't even think my last name is very difficult. Like to me, it's it's, not, it's very easy, but I was like, oh, if they have a more like, I guess, Anglo sounding, like I'll take it, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then, because my first name is like, it's, I guess, quite popular in, in the UK and it's not just like a very typical you know, mm-hmm. only Mexican, um, yeah. Name. So but then I was like, no, like I like my last name. I'm going to keep it. <laughs> Can I ask you a question? I know yeah. this is the other way around here, yeah. but I'm actually really curious. So for a lot of my friends who are first generation or who have moved from, you know, and we're here at, at very young ages, um, I've noticed that a lot of their, their names have either been changed or like their families made the choice very mm-hmm. early on to give them more American sounding names or English sounding, right? Mm-hmm. Popular names in English. Yeah. And were you born Emma or was, did you, did your mom change your name at any other point or? No. So this is my, my legal name. I was actually named after my dad's sister. Oh, um, okay. I was named after my tia Emma. Fun fact that ah. always makes me laugh. If I were born a boy, if I were male, my name, <laughs> My name was going to be Cuauhtémoc. Wow. But so, instead, you're Emma. <laughs> so had I, been, had I been a boy, my name would have been Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas, which is like the most fucking Mexican Aztec name you can get. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I feel like I've, I've seen that a lot, or like the name change, or at least like the last name, the family last name change, with more of my... um. Italian American friends. Yeah. I feel yeah. like they've had, and you know, I mean, that's a whole different experience, you know, coming through Ellis Island and, and whatnot and making that choice or, or being assigned like the, the last name of where you're from, you know, mm-hmm. which is, oh, now I'm really curious because my mom's family last name is um, Samora with a Z mm-hmm. and that's the town that my grandma lived in last, but that's not the town they're from. Oh, like I wonder, like, did that happen in Mexico, or is that just like a coincidence, or like what is there some sort of historical tie to? That's to that interesting. Town? Well, that's yeah. actually like Barreto was um, a region in northern Spain, hmm. which I guess at the time was technically considered Portugal, but is now in Spain. Yeah. Um, there's a whole book about it. My grandfather used to try and teach me on my summer vacations and <laughs> I always got out of it because I was way too bored to care or understand. But meanwhile, now I'm like, my grandparents have, have passed, but I'm like, what happened to the book? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm really curious because there's there's a Samora in, in Mexico, which is where mm-hmm. my grandma's house is, who has also passed, but like the house and, and family are still there. And then there's a Samora in Spain, and there's mm-hmm. also a Cardenas in Spain, which is more over towards like um, Navarro country type stuff. Okay. So I'm like, can I just like go and do some genealogy? And because oh, I, I feel like sure. 23 and Me is so fun. I did it. And, oh, did you? I see. I'm is, super curious. My map is so colorful. I was just talking to some friends about it yesterday. My map is like super colorful. It's like 47% like Native American with like obviously Mexico um and then everything else it's like the other big chunk is um like spanish and southern european which mm-hmm. makes a ton of sense because of all the trade that was happening in the mediterranean 
there's like seven or eight percent that's African and more like specifically West African. So there's your whole like, you know, enslaved people, colonization, all of that stuff. And I just think it, it tells a really, really interesting um, just history that that I don't know anything about. Um, because again, you know, my my mom's generation and her being born and raised in Mexico, it's when she was younger, it was you know, you weren't asking these questions. It was children are not to be seen or heard and they were, mm -hmm. you know, working or whatever. And so she's like, we would never like, are you kidding me? We were there to help, you know, make dinner and then go, go away. Like you are not in yeah. this room as, as the adult. So these aren't questions that she ever, you know, thought to ask or had the opportunity to ask. And now I'm like asking her and she's like, I don't know. <laughs> like, 23 and me. And then, and I got my map and I was like, this is so interesting and and looking to see how I can dive into that further but then I've seen other people's maps and, and one friend in particular comes to mind and her map is like all bright blue which is just like the UK and like Finland and stuff and I'm wow, like wow how interesting like, how's your map yeah I wonder if that's what color? it would be for me like all Brazil and then maybe a little bit of the Portugal like Spain Italy yeah it's sector, I mean, but I recommend I, I, it. It's, it's really cool. All right, I might just have to, to do that before the end of the year. <laughs> um, so I want to end on one last fun note, which and we talked about a little bit before, which is food. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel like that's really the best part of all cultures, honestly. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, aside from what was the dish that you mentioned earlier? It starts with an M. It's called mukeka. Mukeka. Mukeka de camarão, which is shrimp Ooh. mukeka, but they have all kinds of different types of mukeka with seafood. What it's are some delicious. Other, oh, it, I mean, it sounds really good. <laughs> what are some of your other Brazilian comfort foods? Oh, man. Anything fried with cheese, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so pão de queijo, which is probably the most popular or most, mm -hmm. most um, commonly known Brazilian snack, uh, Brazilian cheese bread, as it's referred to here in the U.S., mm -hmm. um, is definitely a, a big one. Pastel de queijo, which is pastel, is basically the Brazilian empanada. Okay. Um, and it is a little different in that it, the dough is quite thin. It's almost like a wonton consistency um, or like a dumpling consistency. And then you have different fillings. I love cheese, but there's also all kinds of different fillings. You can do shrimp, you can do heart of palm, you can do beef, you can do, um, I think chicken maybe. Um, and then now there's all kinds of places like Brazil's all over the like contemporary food scene, especially in Rio, they have um, sweet ones. So you can do Nutella, you can do bananas. There's all kinds of really delicious um, versions of it. And then it's just dropped into a deep fryer and you eat it warm and crispy and melty and amazing. Um, I love barbecue, but it's interesting. I think one of the big things that people think about here in the States, at least is like, oh, you're Brazilian. So like, do you always go to those big churrascarias, the churrascaria, which is the barbecue <laughs> restaurants? <laughs> and um, that's actually one situation where I'll say it, how it's properly pronounced, because there's no way to say it in English. It just doesn't really, it doesn't roll off my tongue in that way. But um, I'll always say to them, yeah, you know, I've been to those restaurants and they're delicious, but my God, that's like eating 12 Thanksgiving dinners in one day. Like I can't eat that much, I, even for me and I can eat, but like, <laughs> um, but what I love particularly about Brazilian barbecue is the picanha, which is the cut of meat that I eat that we, that is very popular. It's um, a really thin cut that comes, I think, from the back um, and you dip it in a little uh, flour type of 
side dish called farofa. It's very typical Brazilian to do that. Um, it's kind of, it's the move in my opinion. Um, <laughs> and it's delicious. And, um, and then feijoada, of course, the beans. You, you got it like, I mean, it's the best. So just kind of building on your plate with all, you know, with the bean stew, um, the rice, you do the meat, different meats. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually, you know, New York has such an incredible international food scene. Um, I, once this pandemic is hopefully behind us, <laughs> I cannot wait to get back to, you know, my restaurant hopping and, um, and planning on spending a lot of time in areas like Flushing where you can get really delicious, authentic, dim sum, Astoria, where you can get really authentic Greek food, but then also there is a section of Astoria in Queens with a huge Brazilian population. I had no idea. Oh, wow. um, and they, I hope that a lot of the Brazilian markets and restaurants have, have made it through um, mm -hmm. because I'm really excited to, to, to go there at some point yeah, and try it out. <laughs> I'm finding that beans and rice are in, are very much a staple in, in almost every Latinx, like, I culture. couldn't agree more. <laughs> I mean, the color of the bean may be different, but it's still like beans yeah. and rice. <laughs> yeah, I think like beans, like the spice. I remember saying to my mom once that I was making beans, rice and beans for dinner. And she was like, oh, so have you been soaking the beans? I'm like, no, mom, I'm using a can of organic beans that I got at Whole Foods. And she was like, <gasps> <laughs> so I think oh, next God. step is I just have to learn how to make a proper plate of Brazilian beans. That's next on the list. <laughs> like right there on the same page. My mom, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna make beans tomorrow for, you know, to have for the week. Cause that's how yeah. I grew up. she would make beans and everything on Sunday. And we just like have it all yeah, week. And sure. she's like, don't forget to soak the beans. And I was like, and I just don't even say anything in my, I have my- You're smarter beans. than I am. <laughs> I, have my, I have my canned beans in the pantry from Whole Foods. And I'm, just, yep. <laughs> I'm like, sure mom, I'll soak the beans. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh, sure. But it's funny because you really do, you do taste the difference. I'm like, I, I've written out the last few times that we had beans. I like say to my husband all the time, I'm like, how is it that I don't know how to like make a normal, just a typical pot of beans that we would, you know, be able to eat, like you just said, for the week. Um, it's next on my agenda. <laughs> They're more work than they seem, I feel like. Yeah, I mean, so it's just, you know, I like things that are fast and convenient, but I also like things to taste good. So I think it's worth yeah. it. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And I think this was a really fun conversation and we definitely tackled a lot of things. Um, but now I'm hungry and I'm yeah, like, I know me too. Brazilian food. It's time for some Brazilian food. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. I just want to say, I think it's so great that you're spotlighting this community mm -hmm. and I can't wait to hear the rest of the interviews that you, that you have and put out on the pod. I think it's really cool that you're really giving, you know, people from different backgrounds with different experiences, a chance to, to talk about their story. Thank you. No, I, I'm loving it. And honestly, it's very selfish, but I'm like learning so much um, myself. The so best like, kind yeah. of selfish. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. It's a great way to help us grow and show your support. Latinx Like Me is executive produced and hosted by me, Emma Cardenas. Feel free to reach out via our website, latinxlikemepodcast.com, and follow us on Instagram at latinxlikeme for updates on future episodes. Till next time.